our road trips this summer, we listened to songs from the musical Hamilton. In fact, I joked last week that I, as I was trying to catch up with everyone at work, I felt like the actor playing Thomas Jefferson who sang, what did I miss? <laughs> to everyone who had been working for years to create a new country while he was in France. A song that often makes me tear up in that musical is the one where Hamilton's wife, Eliza, sings a song to her husband about how hard she has worked in the 50 years since his death to make sure that people understand who he was. At 97, she outlives most of her contemporaries, so she gets to have the last word of that generation. As she sings, who lives, who dies, who tells your story, it is clear that the playwright, Lin-Manuel Miranda, understands not just the importance of legacy, but also the depth of Eliza's desire to ensure that future generations view Alexander Hamilton the way that she wants them to. When you're gone, she says, who remembers your name? Who keeps your flame? Who tells your story? She says it is the Lord's kindness that she was given what Hamilton himself always wanted, more time. So she uses the most of it by giving honor to the man she found to be most extraordinary, the man who changed her life. We begin a book today, 1 John that has no name attached to it, but church tradition and most scholars agree it was written by the last living apostle, John, nicknamed as Son of Thunder by Jesus, which was fitting since one time he asked the Lord to rain down fire on people he didn't like. John was chosen as a leader among leaders along with Peter and James during the Lord's ministry on earth. Like many disciples, he was a fisherman, and in his gospel, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple of the Lord. Whether he thought he was Jesus's favorite or whether he was expressing how he saw himself in the Savior's eyes, we don't know. John was a witness to Jesus's life and some amazing events that only a few got to see. The raising of Jairus's daughter, from the dead, the transfiguration, the Lord praying in the garden before the crucifixion. While on the cross, Jesus tells his mother that John was now her son, meaning that she would be under his care. And John was among the first to see the empty tomb. He was a leader in the early church. He was at the Council of Jerusalem as one of the main pillars. He may have remained in that city until right until the destruction of the temple in the year 70, when many believers fled in obedience to what Christ warned them to do. It's likely at this point that John goes to Ephesus, which becomes the base of his ministry according to early church writers. He is a revered pastor of a collection of house churches there, the author of the Gospel of John in the book of Revelation. Believed to be one of the only followers of Christ not martyred, John also lives into his 90s and is able to give the final word on Jesus. As these epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are to believe the last of the canonical scriptures written, probably around 85 to 95, which is roughly 20 years after both Paul and Peter are killed. Located in modern-day Turkey, Ephesus was considered the most important city in Asia Minor. With an estimated population of over 200,000 people, 
Its location was the key to its significance. It was situated in an inland harbor that flowed to the Aegean Sea and was at the crossroads of major trade routes, attracting people from all over the world. It was a beautiful spot with a fertile valley. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world is located there, the huge temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Artemis, the daughter of Zeus, who had, which had been built in 550 BCE. Because of its importance in the city, it supported a huge religious workforce. Ephesus was a booming metropolitan center which helped to propel the gospel after Paul and Timothy planted the church there. There are many stories found in Ephesus which you can read in the Gospel of Acts and I encourage you to do that. By the time this book was being written, many false teachings had sprung up and were threatening the church. While we're not entirely certain of their nature, John's writings and other writings at the time help us to understand what is happening. And it appears that the congregation in Ephesus has gone through a crisis. People had broken off from the church, and they no longer acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. Not content to simply leave, though, they make church for the trouble. They make trouble for the church by haranguing the people who stayed with their viewpoint. It would seem that John was writing to encourage the believers about the core of the faith. Some of these false teachings that were dividing the church were the beginnings of Gnosticism and Docetism, which held that physical matter is inherently evil. In other words, God, Jesus can't be both completely God and completely human. And because of this, they rejected the historical claims of his birth and resurrection. They taught that he was a phantom figure that only appeared to be in the flesh but was not. There was one teaching who said that there was a distinction between Jesus the human and Christ uh, the divine. That Jesus was an earthly man of Nazareth, well known for his wisdom and holiness. And Christ was the heavenly deity who descended on the human Jesus at baptism and departed before the crucifixion. The church had to reject this. And because these people separated the body and the spirit, it made that them themselves felt like they could do whatever they wanted. They lived out their pleasures and they lived in the body however they wanted and they said they did not sin. And they claimed to have secret intellectual knowledge about God, and they resented the message that was handed down by the apostles, which is why some of John's words are very pointed in this letter. No other writer in the New Testament uses stronger words of denunciation of sin and error than he. John is a pastor. He writes with pastoral concern as he affirms the believers in their faith of God. This book is written in the simplest Greek, in the New Testament, but it is a deeply profound work of the Spirit. Many ideas are from Jesus' own teaching found in the Gospel of John, and we see some of the same contrasts, light and dark, love and hate, good and evil. We have entitled this series Reflecting Love because there are two main ideas found in this book, that God is light and that God is love, and the church is meant to mirror both of these as witnesses. This letter doesn't follow a linear format. It is not laid out in a formal argument. John cycles through a few themes, and he amplifies them. 
Some have said that this book is kind of like a spiral staircase, which is a helpful picture. As we climb up, we might see the same objects or paintings or landscape or people from a different perspective than we did before. So this gives a new appreciation of their beauty or truth, puts them in a new light. We see things from a different angle. Lastly, there are no quotations here from the Old Testament, which is going to be a big difference from our study in Hebrews. John doesn't talk about church organization or any of the arguments going on about faith and works or law and grace. The word agape, God's unconditional love, occurs 51 times in this book. So we're going to steep our souls in the love that Christ came to bring, the love that he expects us to live out. So as we begin our study, we are mindful of the act of devotion that this was for John. To be part of those who created a lasting legacy of the Lord who fiercely loved them and changed their lives for eternity. John tells the story of Jesus in a way that many of his words are permanently etched in our minds. These first four verses are an affirmation of faith as they remind us of the revolutionary ways God broke into our world, truly changing the course of history forever. This is the word of the Lord from 1 John 1, 1 through 4. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also might have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let us pray. Jesus, we belong to your body. We ask for your spirit to speak to us from these few verses. May our meditation honor you. May we be aware and present to your Spirit, today, bring us closer to you and one another. Amen. I find these first few verses to be really a soothing balm for our souls. When we were thinking about what book to study next, I read through another book, and then I came to this one, and I just stopped, and I started weeping. They remind us of John's other words from the opening of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. And then later in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. There are seasons of life that we need to go back to the roots of who we are. 
This feels like one of those seasons. And John is going to help us contemplate who Jesus is to us and in the world. The two prologues do not say the same thing, yet they go together. In the gospel, John emphasizes Jesus' oneness with God, his role in creation, and Jesus becoming human. In our verses, John stresses the reality of the incarnation and the eternal life that Jesus brings. So there are four ideas that briefly I want us to consider from this passage. The first is that Jesus is the center of the reality of the universe, as well as everything that we understand about existence. Remember, this was written to a church experiencing disunity, and John is attempting to bring them back as those who follow Jesus to the same place. And these words bring us into the presence of the living God, reminding us who we are in Christ. In this declaration, John stacks his relative clauses. What was from the beginning? What we have heard? What we have seen with our eyes? What we beheld with our hands and touched? And this witness is important, but the emphasis first and foremost is on the object of the declaration, the word of life. That reality means that Jesus is not just the carrier of great wisdom. It means that he is the focal point of the faith and of our daily lives, that Jesus' coming is the culmination of God's desire to be known by us, to show us the value of relationship with us. So while John is battling those who wanted to remove a human savior, we today also battle. We battle with those who want to take Jesus out of the conversation, but keep his teachings. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And the church has to reject any expression of Christianity that minimizes Jesus or reduces him to anything less than the word who tangibly brings eternal life. We have to cling to the Lord of the manger and the cross as the one who reigns in glory and is Lord over all. Are there spaces, are there times when we are simply to love or to serve alongside those who do not worship Jesus? Of course. Are we to participate in dialogue with interfaith people all over the world? Absolutely. Are we respectful of those who don't know our Lord without a doubt? But we have to find the discerning line for ourselves of knowing that we are not ashamed of Jesus. There are so many who want to take Jesus out of the equation. And sometimes we might find ourselves saying, yeah, that's probably a good idea. Maybe I shouldn't say the name of Jesus. We're bombarded with that message all the time. And so sometimes while we might refrain from words or actions to be respectful, we ourselves have to be clear about who the Lord is in our lives. When we have find ourselves being afraid of offending others, let's stop for a minute and make sure we're not offending the Savior that we claim to love. It is Christ whom we serve. And Paul tells us the gospel is an outrage. The cross is offensive to those who don't believe. Jesus loved everyone but always spoke the truth, always spoke the truth, grounded in scripture And John here is boldly declaring what has been true from the beginning, that the God who came in human form is alive. Jesus has no equal. So what does that mean in our conversations as we gather with family, as we're at school, 
on social media, when we find ourselves who believe differently. Jesus is not one among many of choices for faith. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who died publicly, publicly for our sin and our shame and brings healing to our souls. And he deserves our honor as we live for him. Lord, we pray. We pray for the medical personnel going to that emergency, God. Cover that situation, we ask. Thank you, God, for the helpers. Amen. The second idea here is about the importance of experience. The word we here occurs eight times. John is sharing how profound it was to share life with Jesus. There is a long cord from us connecting us to those who first met the Lord, which assures us we're not alone in our faith. John appeals to his audience not on the basis of his apostolic authority, not on his credentials, or even on the basis of his relationship with them as their pastor. He uses one of the main, main ways we understand God's truth, which is experience. John touched Jesus. He knew what his voice sounded like. He saw Jesus sweat and sleep and eat and heal and preach. He witnessed Jesus die and was one of the first to see him after he rose again. He saw Jesus go into heaven. Our experiences of God matter. They are a gift that God gives us so that his truth can be cemented into our souls. No one can argue with how God meets us. Encountering Jesus, knowing him, walking with him, surrendering our will, watching how he works is the most impactful reality we have in this life. We speak how we have met the Lord and then our stories touch those who are seeking God, those who are doubting, those who are struggling. They, they remind us of who we are and who God is. Jesus never walks away from us, and he continues to give us experiences of his wisdom and peace and miracles and forgiveness and guidance and renewal. Like John, we need to keep telling the stories of the eternal life that are continually revealed to us. The third idea here is about the fellowship of believers. Here the word is koinonia, which means having common union in a shared activity or outlook because of shared experiences. John writes that the purpose of his letter is fellowship. He wants everyone to know the revelation that the disciples were shown with the hope that everyone would come to know Christ themselves. The crux of this gets back to the conversation about experience. Christian community is not just a loose association of people who share a common cause or ideal. Koinonia is being interrelated through Christ's love and sacrifice into one body. We are meant to be serving together, having common vision together, caring for one another. The challenges of the last few years have greatly impacted the fellowship of the church, haven't it? both because gatherings have been limited, but also because of divisive attitudes we have toward one another. While there have always been issues that Christians disagree about, we don't get to distance ourselves from other believers in the way that we might want. How the Lord must weep over the ways that his children fight, how the ways his church isolates itself. Our divisions hurt one another and hurts our witness. It's not an option for us to have hard hearts 
toward our brothers and sisters. So I invite you just to take a moment and ask the Lord if there is any wrong attitude in you, any disrespectful or hateful posture that we have taken with others in his body? Is there a place in us that Jesus needs to make a change and give us a new outlook for those with whom we share his spirit in common? We want to remember to always be humble and to acknowledge the Lord of the church in the ways that we talk and act toward our brothers and sisters. Lastly, John says there is joy in sharing Christ. There's a profound gladness that comes when we fully participate in God's life and invite others to do so. Joy is the byproduct of the Holy Spirit indwelling our heart and leading us to be witnesses for Christ. So let us consider how telling others about the Lord might make our joy complete. Eliza Hamilton spent her last years giving tours of her home and explaining the accomplishments of her husband, Alexander. Her life became about him. This is what we glean from John about his relationship with the Lord in this epistle and the others that he's written. From a young man until the oldest of age, he lived with a conviction and a consistency to make sure that everyone knew the truth and the work about Jesus Christ, that everyone knew that they also could share in the life that he came to bring. So may we ourselves live with that kind of zeal for the Lord all of our lives through. Who among us will tell the story? Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.